Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking. Today we are going to be talking about advanced clinical reasoning with Dr. Thomas Donnelly. Tom is a diplomat of the American College of Laboratory Animal Medicine, a diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in Exotic Companion Mammals, and a diplomat of the European College of Zoological Medicine in Small Mammals. He is currently the co-head of the Exotic Animal Service and a research professor at the French National Veterinary School in our four. Tom has published many journal publications and has been the author of several chapters in the book Ferrets, Rabbits and Rodents, Clinical Medicine and Surgery, otherwise known as the Pink Book, as well as the co-editor of the book Veterinary Clinical Advisor, Birds and Exotic Pets. He is also one of the exotic medicine consultants on VIN. In this episode, we will discuss the process of clinical reasoning, the strategies that can be used to maximize our dynastic skills with exotic pets, and at the end, we'll go through a few case examples. So... Without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Thomas Donnelly. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Simon. How are you going? Good. Good. So maybe we can start. I usually ask most of our guests this. How did you actually become an exotic vet? So after graduation, I did a diploma in veterinary pathology at Sydney University and under Daria Love, and I just loved it. And I wanted to do more studies in pathology. I did not want to go into private practice. So I applied for residencies in the United States in pathology. And what happened was I got about five offers, and one of them was in New York. So I immediately chose New York because I thought it'd be the most stimulating environment with theater and culture and food and museums. Oh, and of course, studying veterinary pathology. So I did that for about six months, and I was actually funded by an elite research institution called the Rockefeller University. I'd won a Rockefeller scholarship, or was awarded. And, uh, and I was doing the pathology at the Animal Medical Center. And in those days, I just found the pathology residency was awful. It was anti-educational. I got no help from the pathologist. I was getting more from a pathology colleague at the Rockefeller. And after six months, I said, you know, I'm so unhappy. I, I want to quit the pathology residency. And the people at Rockefeller said, oh, well, that's okay. We've got another residency available in laboratory animal medicine. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. So... <laughs> It wasn't like I applied like all these people nowadays. So I did a laboratory animal residency, and I ended up working with a lot of researchers, which I really liked. I didn't get into management, but I was doing pathology and medicine. And I had friends at Animal Medical Center who stayed on. And if they had a difficult mammal case, they would ask me. And about 1996... The exotic service at AMC, which used to have about five avian vets, they'd really reduced numbers and they were looking for people. And they approached me and I said, wow, this would be really fun to see pet rats, rabbits, because I've got different ideas. So I started working there three days a week and I just had the best fun, not only with my ideas, but also meeting all of the exotic, exotic pet owners like some were slightly crazy, but in the most delightful way. And that was really fun, just meeting them and getting to know them. And I did that for about, 
five years, and then I took a break. And then Tufts University asked me if I could be involved their service. So I used to run the exotic service in the summer when a lot of their professors were off. They didn't have residents. And I started publishing as well. I, mm-hmm. I did a lot of chapters in the first edition of the Pink Book, and I was writing lots of case reports. And I've just continued doing that. And when was about 2010, started on my own book with Jörg Meyer. So that's how I got involved. Okay, sure. And I had a quick question because I know that you moved to, I don't know if I was pronouncing it right, uh, the French National Veterinary School in Alfort. It's actually in Paris. Oh, it's in Paris. Yes. Alfort is a suburb of Paris. Oh, okay. So that's why I moved here. It wasn't like I'm moving to the country. I moved to Paris. (laughs) Yes, excuse my poor geography. I must say, when I went to well, flew to Paris, I distinctly remember trying to listen to a podcast on how to speak French and being very stressed out about not being able to speak it as I got there. With that context in mind, I want to ask you, what made you decide to go over to Paris to teach veterinary Uh, medicine? Well, number one, I'd always wanted to live in Paris. It's like one of those bucket list things, you know, live and work in Paris before I die. And I've had this Ever since I was a veterinary student, when I visited Paris on a a one-month backpacking tour of Europe, and then up at Tufts University, maybe around 2009, 2010, I had an intern who was French, Charlie Pignon, and we became really good friends, and he asked me over to give talks. And one day he said to me, oh, it'd be so great if you could work with us. And it's like, oh, I'd love to do that. And uh, so we set it up where I could work with him in Alfort. And I, I love the work. I'm seeing a lot more younger people helping them. Also, he's got a great service. And then I do get, well, before COVID, I do do a lot of culture here. So it's really great. And you probably want to know about my French. So yes. <laughs> the French is really, really difficult. When I first came here, I did two weeks intensive French at a Dutch school called Regina Chaley. And the reason I went to the Netherlands and not to France was in the 90s, I had several Australian friends who were working in the stock market doing really major things. I don't know, gold or oil. And uh, they were speaking Dutch. It's like, however did you learn Dutch? And they said their company sent them to Regina Chaley for two weeks. And after that, they were fine. And I thought, wow, if these guys can learn Dutch there, I'm going there to learn French. So I went there. I really didn't learn French, but I made me not afraid to speak or ask basic questions. And I try to do that. And I'm really good now if I go shopping. You know, I can say what, what I want in a market, simple things, or I want directions. It's still really hard for me to have complex conversations. That's really and cool, though. It, well, I'm I'm happy. It's not it's not as great as some people would say. And also, when I do try to speak French at the veterinary school, all the students and clients are saying, "Why are you speaking French? We want to practice our English." Oh, and, fair uh, enough. And then my colleagues speak such good English; they speak English to me. So I'm lazy. I'm learning a little bit every day. Yeah, I can read French pretty well, but it's just hearing. Great. 
So with that, maybe if we can shift over and talk about our topic of the day, clinical reasoning. If we can start, what is clinical reasoning? So clinical reasoning, best way to put it, is based on evidence-based medicine. And it's a logical series of steps in working up a case. That's the best way to put it. And you're not really going on feelings, thoughts, beliefs. You're going on evidence-based medicine. And I think some people refer to it as problem-orientated approach. Exactly. That's it. You could call it that. I mean, where you're working up, the problem-oriented approach, where you come up with differentials and you rule them out. But it also involves other things like how you think. The problem-oriented approach really doesn't talk about thinking or about things you do to put you in the frame of mind. And avoiding pitfalls, that's the other thing. And are there any other frameworks or processes that vets use when it comes to clinical cases? So a good way to put it is that there are two ways of making a diagnosis. And this applies to human medicine and veterinary medicine. And nearly all of this has been taken from human medicine. So it's like, what is the process of me making a diagnosis? How do I make it? So there have been a lot of studies looking at, at the steps one takes. Because before, and it's also the same thing with students or interns or residents working with a really good professor or a really good clinician, if they're not able to explain how they get to the diagnosis, then the people aren't going to learn. In the past, it was assumed that they would learn by osmosis from this really superior clinician, but it doesn't work that way. So you have to know how do you think, and then if you're teaching, how do you teach that to people? So the thing we have to be aware of is that most clinicians with a few years' experience will basically diagnose by pattern recognition. So they've seen a case before, comes in, and it's like, oh, I know what to do in this case. Maybe a puppy that's scooting across the ground. It's like, oh, it's got worms. Or an adult doing it. Oh, it's got impact um, anal glands. Or an animal that comes in and it's shaking its head. It's got an ear infection. So we go on pattern recognition. And pattern recognition is really easy to do. It's almost like automatic driving. If you drive from home to where you work, then you don't really pay attention to road signs or places. You're on automatic. You're not paying any attention. While when you do the alternate, which is more the thinking process, it's like you're driving to work, but you're noticing road signs, you're noticing visual landmarks, you're conscious of what you're doing. So it takes longer to actually do clinical thinking. But in the clinical thinking, you don't go on pattern recognition. You're going much more on what you call the problem-oriented approach. And besides the problem-oriented approach, it also means that you have a good knowledge of the diseases within what you're seeing. Can you elaborate a little bit on when each of those different methods of thinking or diagnosing are best used in practice? The answer to that is if you have a complicated case or a case that's not following the pattern, 
that you normally would expect. Maybe there's one thing off. You don't ignore that one thing that's off. You start thinking, well, maybe there's something else going on. Now, if you're working in a busy vet practice and you're only allowed 15 minutes for a consultation, you can't really do that. To do the mindful thinking of diagnostic reasoning, you need to have time, you need to do very good clinical exam, think about what's going on, take a history, advance the case by thinking of multiple options. I'd say you really need 30 minutes and young vets, new graduates, probably need about an hour to do that until they get up to speed. If you're working in a practice where you're allowed 30 minutes for a consultation, you can do pattern recognition with about 80% of cases that come in. This is just what's been found. But about 20% of the cases will need you to think with diagnostic reasoning because the pattern of the case is not typical. A good example I can give in rabbits, we had a rabbit that came in and it was owned by a young girl of about 12. Really good with that rabbit. And the rabbit had suddenly become paralyzed in the hind limbs. So we asked, what happened? Did you drop the rabbit? Because we're thinking of a vertebral fracture. Did you drop the rabbit? Has anything happened? And the girl kept saying, no. So we said, well, let's do an x-ray. And when we did the x-ray, there was no indication of a vertebral fracture. And it's like, this is really odd. What's going on? And you normally think when you see a rabbit that's suddenly paralyzed in the hind limbs of a vertebral fracture, and we're thinking, well, could it be maybe a nerve damage? Is there something else? What could it be? And what we need to remember is although it's rare, you can have tumors or infectious processes in the spinal cord, which will cause paralysis. So in this case, we gave anti-inflammatories to the rabbit. We were treating symptomatically. And we said, let's see how it progresses. And we said we'd see it again in seven days. Now, if we were thinking about the process, we would want to do another test to rule it out, and that would be an MRI. But as the cost of an MRI is really expensive, and there aren't that many MRIs, it's not always easy for the veterinarians to do that. And also, the cost is prohibitive for most donors. So you can't make a definitive conclusion that it is a tumor or an infectious process. So we waited. We said, come back in seven days. And the rabbit actually came in five days later to emergency with a keratitis. And it looked like it was developing a corneal ulcer. And it's like, what's going on here? So we did the fluorescine test. And luckily, I had a very attentive intern with me. And the intern was examining everything. And he was saying, you know, it's really odd. When I touch the eye, the rabbit doesn't blink. And I really hadn't done a full clinical exam. So we did a full clinical exam on the rabbit. And there was definitely a cranial nerve problem. And it's like, well, what would fit in with that? Where you've got one eye not blinking and the rabbit's paralyzed. So it would be a tumor and probably a tumor that's metastasizing to the central nervous system. And when we asked about the rabbit, it was a female rabbit that had not been neutered. And it's like it's a tumor because adenocarcinoma, um, uterine adenocarcinoma is very common. But that's the case where if you see that paralyzed rabbit and 
the x-rays don't show anything and you try doing a nervous system disease workup and it's not really showing anything, then you have to think outside of the box. But if you've got 15 minutes, normally what you would do is say, oh, it's likely to be paralysis and we don't need to do an x-ray. I think we should always offer tests to people and then let them make the decision. And I know a lot of vets think, oh, that person doesn't have the money to do that. But you'd often be surprised at, um, at the people who are prepared to spend money on their pets and then the people who you think should spend money on their pets but don't. So you always offer, offer everything you can and let them know what your differential diagnoses are. Sure. So did that rabbit have no cranial nerve deficits during the initial presentation? No, none. We got a neurologist in to do a, a clinical exam as well. That's where it really helps being at a, either a specialist place or a university where there are other people. And if you feel you're weak on something, then you can get another specialist to look. And I, I just feel like I'm weak on everything. I can't read radiographs. I'm not good with nervous system diseases. What else? I, I don't do surgery. I think I'm just, mm. you know. But what I found is I spent many years when I was doing research working in human hospitals. And in the human hospitals, a doctor who's a specialist in kidney disease doesn't even look at cardiology, doesn't look at nervous system. The specialist doctors who I really respected, if there's something outside of their small discipline, then they get another specialist to look. And I think as veterinarians, we don't do that often enough. We often think we should be good at everything, and it's just not possible. And I say that particularly for like young veterinarians. They might think, oh, I'm not good at that, I'm not good at that. But work on what you're good at, what you like to do. And then nowadays with with specialist services, a lot of them, you know, can be done via the internet, like radiographs or cardiology. So think about, you know, don't panic if you're not good at everything. You're not meant to be. Sure, sure, no problem. And I'm sure you're being way modest about this as well. I did want to ask, back to that clinical reasoning approach, where do you think, especially for new vets who haven't used it that much or are not experienced with going through that process with cases, where should they be focusing or where do they generally go wrong? I think one is taking a good clinical history. And don't forget things like, what's the temperature? Is the animal desexed? Doing a good clinical examination. And on the clinical examination, if you think there's something wrong, don't be afraid to say, I think there's something wrong and get a colleague to check for you. And once you start getting into a pattern of doing a, a good history and clinical examination, that really helps. The other thing, they should be done methodically. So when you ask questions, you can ask, start off with like, what's the age of the rabbit or what's the age of the animal? Is it neutered? Has it been to a veterinarian before? Things like that. And then you get body weight. And then after you get body weight, then you can do an examination. And I always like to start at the head. And then I go down, listen to the chest, palpate the abdomen, and then maybe have a look externally like anus, genitals, maybe double check the mouth, look at the skin. But you do it in a 
methodical pattern. So it then becomes second nature to you. Okay, sure. In terms of that sort of process, I mean, and I know that we're going to go through an example, so I think people will have a better idea of that when we do that. But once they have done their history, once they've done their clinical or physical exam uh, and they have problems, how do you actually go about going from collecting all that information to then deciding which diagnostic test is going to be the most useful? Okay. It's like going through what you talk about, the problem-oriented method. You come up with a list of differential diagnoses, and then you can prioritize those. This is the one I think most likely, so that's number one. This is the second. This is the third. And then when you're picking a diagnostic test, you always have to ask yourself, does doing this diagnostic test either confirm what I'm looking for or does it show that it's not what I'm looking for? For example, a lot of the time in like exotic pet medicine, people might say, well, we'll take a full body radiograph. And it's like, well, what are you taking it for? You've got to have a reason for doing it. Or people who say, well, we'll just take full blood count and biochemistry. It's like, well, what are you looking for in it? You've always got to ask yourself, what am I looking for? And if you can't answer that, then it's not really a good diagnostic test. So you've got to think about what confirms or eliminates it. And as you do that, then your differential list becomes smaller. Or you may say it's equivocal, and then you have to do another diagnostic test, and you keep refining your differential diagnosis list. Now, a problem with that, it's having enough information in your head where you can create a good differential diagnosis list. So if you're a new practitioner, you might only think of five things. And if you're an advanced practitioner, maybe you can think of 12 things. So it's critical to keep reading and doing continuing education in your early years so you can keep up and, and expand your knowledge base. I have a few questions about what you just said just now. The first one I wanted to ask was, if you come up with several problems, how do you choose which problem to pursue first? That's really important to think about. Are you dealing with multiple problems or are you dealing with a single problem? And generally, as animals get older, they have multiple problems. So you need to be aware of that. So then when you do your clinical examination, you need to start thinking of organ systems and what would be likely. And maybe sometimes you have two different organ systems involved. And then you have to ask yourself, well, could these be two separate problems? But often two separate problems have a similar pathophysiology. Ferret's a classic for having multiple problems as they get older. A ferret could have adrenal disease and an insulinoma and cardiac disease. So probably the best way to do it is what's the owner bringing the animal in for? And you focus on that problem. What's the major complaint? And then you try to get a diagnosis of that. But you may discover there are other problems going on that the owner was not aware of. If the problems come up and they're very non-specific problems, where would you start in that sort of situation? Okay. For non-specific I think the first thing you do, you have to evaluate the animal. Is the animal likely to die soon? Or is this a problem that the animal's 
not likely to die from immediately. So if it's likely to die pretty soon, then you need to do symptomatic treatment, and that could include admitting it to hospital. If you don't think the animal will die soon, and just a warning, when you're dealing with exotic pets, um, was it David? No. When you're dealing with dogs and cats or people, for example, you can see that they start showing signs of declining. And if they're sick, they start to get worse in how they look. And then eventually you could say they die. But when you're dealing with exotic pets, you have to remember that most of them are prey species. They're eaten by other animals, except ferrets. So if they show any signs of weakness, pain, sickness, then they're likely to be eaten. So your exotic pets, except ferrets, will um, they will hide all their signs. And when you do see the clinical signs, it's likely that the disease is very advanced. So you can't really take it lightly. That's a big difference. It's not like, oh, it's just developed. No, it's most likely had it for a while. So that's one thing, thinking about it. So then when you have a case that you see and you don't think the animal's going to die, you can do basic tests. But that's like doing a fishing expedition where you're throwing out. And what's good if you're along as the owner will go along, if you're a young veterinarian, you can always do full body radiograph. But the reason you're doing that is primarily to see if there's anything happening in the intestines. And it's sort of looking, is there evidence of like gas, which would suggest the animal is anorectic? But you may also look, are there fractures or are there problems in, in the lungs? And you can do a full blood count and uh, biochemistry. Okay. Now, the owner may not want to do that. And you say, okay, so if the animal comes in and it's got vague, then you have to ask yourself, can I treat it symptomatically? And if it's too vague, you can't, then perhaps the best thing to do is be in contact with the owner and have the animal come in for a revisit. But, you know, that's rarely the case with exotics. Normally there's something there. But just doing a few tests, and then you can see if there's anything in those tests that might suggest a disease. But remember, when you're doing something like biochemistry or hematology, there's a 5% error of a false positive. So when you've got something like 40 tests, it's likely that two of the tests will be a false positive or false negative. So you just can't go on one abnormality when you're looking at hematology or you're looking at biochemistry. There's normally two things involved and you'll see that they're associated. That's actually really interesting. I had a case recently where a ferret showed a eosinophilia on my hematology and then trying to think of how that fit in with everything and it just didn't make sense and then we repeated the blood test a few days later and it was not there and we're just like, oh, that must have been a false positive. <laughs> That's really important. And particularly if you get, like with um, rabbits and rodents, then they're neutrophils. They're not neutral coloured granules. They actually stain positive. So people often use the term heterophil. And for an inexperienced laboratory technician, and that could be one, who, a technician who's come from a human medical laboratory. They can misdiagnose heterophils, the neutrophils, as the eosinophils. 
And in your case, you had a ferret, so that should not be a problem. So then you repeat the test just to verify. And I think that's always good. If the test is positive for the same problem again, then it's worthwhile calling up the laboratory to ask them, you know, did they do anything? Why do they think that's happening? Or speak to a pathologist there. And that's part of the fee for doing it and see what they say. And if they can verify that the laboratory test is good, then you start thinking of differentials. Now, with a lot of animals, one thing you need to do with a laboratory, you need to ask the laboratory, where are they getting their normal values from? Are they getting it from a book or have they actually done over 40 animals? And this is based on their findings. Ideally, what you want is a laboratory that has developed its own reference intervals from cases it had seen and do not go on values in a book. And that's a really important question. If they don't have reference intervals, they're going on a book, then you need to think carefully about, well, if it's abnormal, you know, maybe it's, we normally go two standard deviations. Could it be in the third standard deviation? Or maybe that's normal for that animal. But always ask the laboratory. Good to know. Back to the clinical reasoning process. Just to clarify things, just so it sort of makes sense in my head, you do your history, you do your physical examination, and then from that find, make up your problem list, and then you'll get your differential diagnoses. If it is nonspecific, then you may have to do some initial diagnostic test to try and find some problems and then start your thinking. But you could also ask yourself, you know, is the history adequate? Maybe you want to ask a few more questions. And on your um, clinical examination, have you not done anything that you might have, um, that you should have? Sure, no, that makes sense as well. Go back and then you come up, okay, we've done all the right things, but the the clinical signs that you're seeing are nonspecific and what the owner sees is nonspecific. Sure. So after you do your your further diagnostics and you do find the problems, and you said that uh, you need to formulate these differential diagnoses lists, and some of that is just knowing what those are. Do you have yeah. some sort of system or some sort of process so that it just helps people not forget differentials? Oh. When you do pathology you always think of lesions. It depends which system you look at. I think one of them is like seven things you look at. I use one that's simpler. It's only got five things. So I ask myself, is it congenital? Is it infectious? Is it metabolic? Is it neoplastic? Is it traumatic? And the metabolic covers a whole gamish of things. That's the problem. Or Like, where do urinary stones come in into that? They don't really fit in congenital or infectious or traumatic. So there are longer ones. But if you keep it simple like that, like the one I've got, then I think that really helps you at the start. Anyone can look up all of these systems um, in any pathology book, or I think even, I don't know if they're in clinical reasoning or clinical veterinary books but just and I think there's even maybe you know it I think there's even a mnemonic for the five seven twelve things that you can remember yeah I I remember back at uni 
people were using this, I think it was called Damn It V, and it sort of went through degenerative. Oh, degenerative. Yes. Yeah. A, anomalous that, metabolic. Yeah. yeah that's, if, if you've got an if you've got a mnemonic like that, that's a really good one. Mm-hmm. And and write it down and come up, you know, and write things next to it. Don't do it in your head. That's a good mnemonic, yeah. The other one I heard from her, a clinician once told me that she just walks around the abdomen, as in she, for the metabolic diseases, she'll just imagine the, your different organs and then start walking around. <laughs> but uh, That's another way, yeah. yeah. Which I guess everyone has their own has their own method of doing it, but they just try yeah. and keep it. I think the big thing is they just do the same thing again and again. Yeah, but the thing is, when you are thinking like that, it's what we called out mindful thinking. So you, you've got to ask yourself, am I going on pattern recognition? And if not, then be aware. Be aware that you're, you're exploring. And that takes time. It's slower. It's more methodical. And the people who write on mindful thinking, they say that the mindful thinking should be part of your life. We would talk about it as people who may be meditative, but it's very easy to be mindful in your life. You're thinking about your work. Maybe you think about the tastes in the food you have. You think about what you say to people. It's not like this radical change you have to do, but you just become more aware. Sure, sure. And I like the fact that you said to write it down. Uh, I remember I had one specialist or mentor tell me that he writes down everything he's thinking and it makes a huge difference than just trying to do it uh, in his head. It does, yeah. Particularly if you've got, you know, five or more differential diagnoses or you've got an animal that doesn't really, we call them non-symptomatic, but um, they don't really have symptoms. They, they have clinical signs. And, and one of the things you can do once you know it, start looking for the more obvious things. Like we know that in rabbits and guinea pigs, they will often develop anorexia. Anorexia is a response to pain, but you verify, do they have anorexia? You can do that by seeing if there's gas in the intestinal system. Sometimes if you do um, biochemistry, you may have elevated lipids. But do they have anorexia? And then if, you, if there's evidence and you look in the mouth to make sure so there's a difference. The animal doesn't want to eat or the animal actually picks up food, but it can't chew or swallow it. So go for obvious things. Don't go for the rare diseases. And when you're dealing with these animals, there are more common diseases, and that's always a good starting point. Good, good. So I think this would be a good time to go through a few case examples. Uh, just so that people can see how clinical reasoning can be applied to real cases. Here's a very simple one. If you have a rabbit and it comes in, and it comes in maybe to have surgery, and you decide, well, we'll just do a pre-anesthetic, complete blood count and biochemistry, and then, and say the rabbit's about four years old and it's neutered. So blood work comes back but you actually see that um, the red blood cell count, or the the hematocrit, say, is about 75%, and there's an elevated red blood cell count. And you look at it, it's like, well, this is unusual. So you could do two things. You could call the laboratory, 
and say, was there anything abnormal? They say, no, no, this is what we got. And they might say, we ran it twice. So then you could decide, okay, well, we'll just repeat the diagnostic test again two days later. Because the way most people would be thinking based on pattern recognition is that there's either interference with the red blood cell count or it's just an error because it was um, a bad operator day or the machine, a bad machine day. So then you repeat it and you find it has the same, the values are still the same. So when that happens, you have to think about, ah, so this is a true polycythemia as opposed to a false polycythemia. But the animal's not showing any clinical signs. And normally when we get a polycythemia, it's often associated with breathing conditions in animals where they have a lot of problems breathing. But this rabbit's not showing anything. So then you just have to go back and say, well, what can it be associated with? And this is where you need to have a good medical base. So you could either do a search, and doing searches are really important, literature searches, and knowing how to do a good one. And then what you would find that with nephroblastomas, or they're called Wilms tumors in pigs, rabbits and people, they're about 5%, 10% of the cases will have a polycythemia vera because as the tumor expands, so do the glomerular complexes, including that one where the erythropoietin producing cells are. And you might think, oh, wow, that's really interesting. But you would also like to know that nephroblastomas are the third most common tumor found in rabbits. The <laughs> most common is uterine adenocarcinoma. Second is lymphoma. Third is um, nephroblastoma. I'm not counting skin tumors here. So that would sort of fit in if you think, oh, yeah, well, nephroblastomas can occur. The rabbit, as I said, is four. It's neutered. It's not uterine adenocarcinoma. This could be what's going on. So then you might decide to do other tests like abdominal X-ray or even abdominal ultrasound, which would be better. But always go for the common things. And then if you've got verification that it's not an error, it's not a laboratory error or an operator error, then you've got to start thinking more. That's really interesting. Could the polycythemia have been related to dehydration? Yeah, that, that's a good question. But then if it's dehydrated, you'd expect plasma proteins to be elevated as well and the plasma proteins are not elevated. So it's like, why is it only the red blood cells? <laughs> ah, I see. And when you identified the polycythemia, can you elaborate a little bit more about your analytical approach when you are faced with uh, polycythemia? And also, if you could tell us a little bit more about how to do a, a good literature search? Well, what causes polycythemia? And you can look at relative or true. So we know that commonly hypobaric, low oxygen, will cause a responsive polycythemia. But then you'd expect the rabbit to be having problems breathing. And if you're not seeing that, or you could try taking a radiograph, see what's happening with the lungs. But if it's not showing that, then you have to think, well, what else could be causing it? You always go for the most obvious, and that's where your database 
that you have in your mind is really important. But the second thing you can do is do a literature search. And I, I give a lot of lectures to interns and residents about how to do a proper literature search. And I should mention that because when there have been a few papers published in the last 10 years about what is the major source that veterinarians go to for information. And unfortunately, they just go to Google, <laughs> which is not very good. You can try Google Scholar, but the problem is that often your, your search term, well, if you're looking at, say, polycythemia and rabbit, you may get a lot of tests coming up where there is um, a rabbit antibody rather than an actual whole, you know, a case. So what's been found is that the best database is one called Commonwealth Agricultural Bureau or CAB because it's focused on veterinary work. It will give you the best results. And the second best one is Scopus, which is the database that Elsevier uses. And I can remember when I'd be in Australia, I was going back a few years, that the Postgraduate Foundation, if you remember, you could access CAB or maybe your university that you went to allows you to have access to library services for a fee. That's very popular in the United States now. If you go to PubMed, you end up missing about 20 to 40% of relevant cases. But if you, if you don't have access to all these things, you can try PubMed. And then you just do a search of rabbit and polycythemia, see what you get. And if you're still having problems, that's when you ask a specialist. So you could ask a specialist or you could subscribe to Veterinary Information Network and see what they say. There, there are lots of ways to go. But just because it's not in a book doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Good to know. Now, I did want to ask if we could go through another case, if that's okay with you, just so that listeners can see different examples of how you can apply the analytical thinking process. Maybe we could discuss pituitary tumors in rats? Yeah, so let's do that. So normally what you'll see with pituitary tumors is a female rat will come in occasionally a male, but it's more common, a female rat. She's not neutered and she has a mammary tumor or a few mammary tumors and you remove them. And then three months later, another two spring up and you do histopathology at the start. And I always recommend people do histopathology because in rats, 20% depends who you read, but 10, 20% of the mammary tumors are actually carcinomas. And you can go on the appearance, like if it's a fibroadenoma, it's easy to shell out. Yeah, it's not, not burrowing to the tissue. So you remove them and then it comes back. So you think, aha, it's coming back. What is the cause of that? And what we know from about 40 years of research using rats into breast cancer research is that the rats that have mammary tumors, mammary fibroadenomas, have a hyperprolactinemia. So they have elevated prolactin levels. And ideally what you would want to do is measure the prolactin 
But tragically, that's not possible because in the past, they're all done by radio immunoassay. And as far as I'm aware, there are no diagnostic labs really offering a prolactin ELISA assay. They are commercially available, but they're for research labs where you buy a kit to do maybe 80, um, 80 samples and it could cost $500. And then I've known people in the United States who've sent it to, one was a laboratory that primarily tested horses, so they did prolactin measurements uh, on rats. They also did one on a porcupine. Um, wow. But, so we can't really do the prolactin test. And if you do want to run a test, Maybe you send it to a human medical lab and it's not really done by any of the veterinary labs. You should always send three normal animals as well as the affected animal so you can just see what's happening with the, the measurements. So you then ask, well, what causes hyperprolactinemia? And it's due to pituitary tumours. And they're actually quite common in human beings. And uh, the sign... Normally, the first sign that's seen with them, because a lot of them are microadenomas in humans, is that there is production of milk or galactorrhea, where women will produce milk and they're not lactating, they haven't been pregnant, and occasionally you see it in men. So we know when that happens that there's a pituitary tumour. So if the rabbit's got the fibroadenomas, then it's got a pituitary tumour. People say that's not quite correct, but we're looking, if you look for gross changes and not enough rats sort of, that are pet rats, um, they have um, necropsies done and then the pituitary is sliced and everyone looks to see maybe there's a micro adenoma or a pituitary adenoma. So you can treat the mammary tumors. One, you could neuter the rat, but once they're over a certain age, then neutering doesn't really help. And the reason that you get the pituitary tumors is due to high estrogen levels. You can actually artificially induce some pituitary tumors in rats by giving them very high doses of estrogen for a, a chronic period. So what you could do then, if you want to stop the prolactinemia, you can give um, a drug that inhibits that, like cabagolin or bromocryptine. So then you stop the mammary tumors, but you've still got the pituitary tumor. And then you have to think about, you know, are there problems with this pituitary tumor? Because the big problem with pituitary tumors is that they get too big and they bleed out. And then you have a crisis where the animal dies suddenly. You could always say, well, we'll offer you um, a CT scan. But CT scans don't always pick it up. MRI is the best. So if you were just doing what we call pattern recognition, you'd most likely say, oh, mammary tumor, is the animal neutered? We neuter it. And then that'll stop it. And I think that's, well, my experience, a lot of practitioners do that. But neutering the animal doesn't help if it's over a year old. And then the tumors come back again. So they remove them. And then they have to think about so if they keep coming back and you've neutered the animal, you have to think, why are they coming back? And the reason for that is because there's a hyperprolactinemia. And that's probably when you're getting into the, uh, to what I call the analytical thinking. I guess the same could be said if you're thinking about like an insulinoma, say in a ferret, 
you can initially treat it, but then you might want to think about, well, why do we have it? Has it spread to other organs? And then you could try to do an evaluation to see where the spread is. Sure. I don't know if that really answers the analytical thinking part or not. I think it does in a way, because I think that there there needs to be some sort of thought process. My only concern would be in a clinical setting would be, that, and you already raised it, we can't measure prolactin. In Australia, you can't measure it, Yes, as far as I'm aware. And then I have not been able to convince a rat owner to do CT or MRI. Yeah. So when That's I've seen them... a huge problem with owners not wanting to spend money. Yes. And then when I've had them... I guess there is a little bit of guessing here where I will have a older rat with sort of neurological signs and maybe has had some memory tumors removed and they keep coming back. I will just start them on the cabagoline, but it's very yeah. much a, I'm not 100%, I'm just trying something. You're not 100%, that's it. But because we can't do it, then you can say it is likely to be this. And even giving a treatment and following it can be like a diagnostic test. So... If you think it is a pituitary tumour and this rat is coming back every three months for new tumours and you give it the cabagolin and it doesn't come back for a year, then you can think, oh, my treatment's working and what's your treatment doing? So it's like giving antibiotics when you think you may have an infectious cause. If the animal doesn't respond, well, there are two things. It's not infectious or if there is an organism causing it, then it's not sensitive to that antibiotic. So then you go in and say, well, we've got to take a sample. And sometimes taking samples, like in rabbits, a lot of the tumors are quite caseous. So everything in the scent is dead. You will not get anything growing from there. So when you are taking samples of masses, it's often good to open it up, get rid of the pus, maybe scrape the capsule, and then take a swab from there, because that's where you're likely to find an organism. That's one way. And in guinea pigs that have chelitis, which I don't know if you see much of that, but it's a big problem. I've seen a few. And they just don't seem to respond. What I always do is take a biopsy, and then I get half of the biopsy for histopathology, and the other half I send for culture. And what you'll often find is that the culture might have a bacteria like a Staphylococcus aureus, but you nearly always have a yeast growing with it. I just have to think what that yeast is. Candida. Candida yeast, yeah. So I, I think you touch on a topic that comes up a lot in clinical practice, at least for me it does, and it's frustrating where you start to treat and it's not working and then the owner's expecting you to do something because it's not working now. And I think that this might be a good time for... So just a little bit of context. Tom sent me some images and it sort of explains the way that he goes about treating things when when there's some limits in diagnostic information. I thought it'd be good for him to just explain to us what he meant by this. The first thing I'd say is when I consult on VIN, say 80% of the questions are from younger vets saying, I've got this animal... And this is what it's got, but the owners won't allow me to do any diagnostic tests. You know, what do you think's going on or what can I do? And this is a huge problem because you want to help the animal, but you have to say to those owners, you know, I need to do diagnostic tests to get a diagnosis. And 
without doing those diagnostic tests, I am very limited in making a diagnosis. I can make a diagnosis based on probability, and we could treat based on probability, but I don't know what's going on. And don't be afraid to say that, because what you're basically doing is saying that the owner's choice is limiting your options. So that's number one. And then number two, when you are treating an animal, you should expect a response from the drugs. Normally, drugs start giving a response in like three to four days' time. So if you're treating for a problem and you have the owner come back in a week and there's been no response or the situation's gotten worse, then the drug you're giving is not working. And the reason the drug's not working could well be your tentative diagnosis is not correct, or in the case of an antibiotic, could be that the drug is resistant. And I think one of the problems in human medicine and in veterinary medicine, and this aspect is notorious in behavior practitioners, where they're saying, well, we will increase the dose of the behavior drug. And they keep increasing, and this goes on for three months, and then there's no response. And then they say, well, maybe we should try something else. But first, we have to decrease the dose of the drug we're doing, and, uh, and that'll take another three months. So this poor owner has, has an animal with a problem. And six months later, it's like, we'll try it on another drug. I mean, that's the extreme case. But what I like to do is think of two things. It's, it's like fishing. When we're looking for something we're not certain of, it's like, do we throw out a fishing line, like we're sitting by a lake or a river, and we're just throwing out our line and seeing if we've got any responses? And that's all very nice. But they, uh, they often talk about that in research, where people do a research project and they're expecting, they go fishing. They're not too sure what they're doing, but they go fishing. And instead of pulling up a fish, they pull up an old boot. And then they write the paper about when they did this, they found an old boot. But that's really not what their question should have been. They should have had a hypothesis. And when we give drugs, we should have a hypothesis that we give this drug and it affects this disease, it makes it better. And when we do this, we want to be certain. We don't want to go fishing where we're just throwing out our line and seeing if we get a fish or maybe we get an old boot. That, that's not good. So I always use the example of fishermen going out on a boat that has echographic ultrasound attached to it. So these high-powered boats go out, and they're looking for a school of fish. And once they find the school of fish, they stop over it, and then the fishermen put out their lines, and they just keep pulling up fish. They pull up one, they pull up another. There are so many fish, they keep pulling them up. They're getting incredible results. And then suddenly they're not pulling up fish anymore. And, and they look, and it's like there's no school of fish under them. So then the boat starts up again and it goes looking for another school of fish or the same school of fish and once they find them they settle over it and then the fishing continues so you know there's going to be a response because you know with the ultrasound you go over where the fish are when we're going fishing it's like you're not really sure what the diagnosis is but if you give a treatment the animal should react and it can either be a toxicity that's reacting to the drug, it could be beneficial, 
there may be something this drug that gives a blood result like corticosteroids will suppress lymphocytes and they'll increase eosinophils i mean you see an effect but if the drug's not having any effect then you need to reevaluate and you need to try another treatment and i think a lot of vets will say because they have great belief well let's keep trying this drug or we'll increase the dose and this could go on for a month and it's really not helping anybody the animal the client or you so that's one thing you can be certain of in the in the treatment sure i think that's really good i really like that analogy to be honest and i must say i i mean i definitely have in the past said oh you know let's just keep going for a few days and see how we go which is <laughs> exact i think everybody does that yeah it's easy right just to prolong but uh, yeah i can see how that is not the way we should be doing or practicing medicine in terms of where we go from here can we talk a little bit about your diagnostic approach and thought processes when you see a case of urolithiasis? Just because that's a very oh, okay. common thing that we see. Oh, um, it's so common. Yeah, particularly rabbits, guinea pigs, we see that a lot. So it depends on the sex of the animal. So if it's some um, female guinea pig or rabbit and the owners are saying they think they see blood in the urine, then the two things you would do immediately is examine the vagina, the external genital and what you can. And you'd also take a urine sample and do a dipstick on it to see if there are red blood cells. And you can also spin it down to see if there are any in the sediment. So that confirms you've got a hematuria. And with females, you always have to think the hematuria could be coming from the uterus or it could be coming from the bladder. So if the animal is neutered, then it's highly unlikely coming from the uterus. It's more likely to be coming from the bladder. If it's a male, the cause is if there is blood in the urine that you've confirmed, it's either going to be coming from the bladder or coming from the prepuce. And you can do an examination of the prepuce. And if it looks normal, then it's coming from the bladder or maybe accessory sexual glands associated with the um, urinary tract. So then in rabbits and rodents, go back on what are my differentials? And your most common differential is going to be urinary calculi. So you can easily confirm that by doing a radiograph. And the beauty of rabbits and rodents, they're not like dogs or cats where you can get struvite, phosphate, cysteine, there, there are a couple of other rare ones, silica. Virtually all of the stones we see in rabbits and rodents are going to be calcium phosphate base, but they may have a bit of magnesium with it or, or something like that. But it's still calcium phosphate, and calcium phosphate is radio-opaque when you take an X-ray. And, and just a word on that, on Vin, a lot of people say, oh, we've got calculi. Can we give anything to dissolve the calculi? And you cannot give anything to dissolve calcium phosphate calculi. doesn't work. That's dog and cat medicine. And in ferrets, we're seeing a lot more cysteine stones. They're increasing cystinuria. But a few that I've seen, actually, they have a, they're radiopaque because they must have some calcium and phosphate in them, as well as the cysteine. Anyhow, so you confirm that there is calculi there. And the only way to treat it is surgery 
to remove the calculus. And two things you can do beforehand, you can take a urine sample, submit it for bacterial analysis and see if there's a urinary tract infection. And then the second thing is you do the surgery. If there's an infection, you can start giving antibiotics beforehand. So you do the surgery, you remove the stones, and it's always good to have the stones identified. And that can be done at the Minnesota Urolift Center for free. I don't know how long it takes to get there from Australia, but um, they will do it for free. Do they accept it from everywhere in the world? We have listeners all around Europe as well as the UK as well, so yeah. They'll take it from everywhere in the world. The Minnesota Urolith Centre, which is at the College of Veterinary Medicine at University of Minnesota. So you sent that off. But now that you've done the surgery, you need to do some critical things. And the first thing... It's like in your surgical technique, you obviously don't have knots going into the bladder and you use certain types of material which don't cause a reaction. But you need to induce diuresis in the animal so it's flushing out the urine. And you want to give analgesics. Now, a lot of people, when they say they're going to increase diuresis, they say, oh, we can give, like rabbits or guinea pigs, we can give these plants like, dandelion or there are all these other plants and they say it's a natural diuretic or we can put sugar in the water and they'll drink more and I just think that is such crazy thinking because we have drugs that will increase diuresis so you give a diuretic and the best diuretics give in this case are hydrochlorothiazides because they don't cause an increased calcium excretion. If you go back and you look at your three classes of diuretics, furosemide will cause increased calcium excretion in the urine. So you do a hydrochlorothiazide, so the animal increases its drinking and it's flushing out the bladder. So how long do you leave the animal on the hydrochlorothiazide? Well, maybe two weeks initially. So you get healing, and the urethelium of the bladder heals in five days. So then you check the animal, see what's going on, and it's often worthwhile to take another radiograph because you may have very small calculi there. In some animals, they form rapidly, others they're slow. But often, in guinea pigs, the calculi come back, and it's like, what do you do? So if the calculi come back quickly, then we have an animal that is a calculi producing animal. And normally people say there's too much calcium in the diet. Well, we know that rabbits, calcium is excreted in the urine. It's not limited in how much is um, absorbed. So it's, it's excreted in the urine. In guinea pigs, people say, oh, it's excreted in the urine. We don't have any evidence for that at all. So you can't say that. But you will have animals that have elevated calcium and they're excreting more calcium in the urine. Rabbits, you may see a hypercalcemia. Guinea pigs, it's maybe. But when you have that happening, then the two big things you want to think about, it's like what's important is what we call the saturation ratio, I believe. And that's like how much of calcium phosphate can we have dissolved in the urine before it becomes solid? So what you want to have is you want to have and that's going to depend on two things. The actual saturation, what, what does it change at? And then two, how much is actually dissolved? So when we look at how much is actually dissolved in the urine, if 
the animal drinks more water, then the urine will be more dilute and you're not having a chance for the compound to reach saturation. So you have diuresis. So you give a drug that will increase diuresis in these animals and you can keep it on it for the rest of its life. Because that happens in humans. People are often on diuretics for 40, 50 years. And you can have checkups. Hydrochlorothiazide or thiazides may have metabolic issues, but you just check up on that maybe once a year. But then the other thing you can do is that you can increase the supersaturation ratio. And the body does that naturally by having agents within the urine that increase the supersaturation ratio. And they're things like nephrocalcin, glycoaminoglycosides. If, if there weren't these in the urine, then with the protein and other things, urine could just be like a gel, and then it would never be possible to urinate. So that'd be a huge problem. So the urine has to be kept in a liquid form. And a natural one is citrate. And citrate's really good. And there have been these studies done where human beings who have recurrent calculite, normally it's oxalate in humans, they're given citrate, and the citrate increases the ratio, and the incidence is dramatically reduced. So we can give the rabbit or rodent citrate. Now, big difference. In dogs and cats, when they're a calculi, clinicians will often give citrate. But the reason for giving the citrate is to acidify the urine. And when the urine is acidified, you don't have certain calculi forming. In herbivores, the urine is always alkaline. So no matter how much acid you give or how much of an acidifier you give, you're really never going to get the urine pH below 7. So we're giving citrate because of the properties citrate have, which increase supersaturation. So by giving citrate into the feed daily, or you can clinically give it, it means that there's less risk of a calculi forming. So you put those two together, giving citrate, which you can buy over the counter, and giving a diuretic, and you keep the animals on that. And people are like, well, we can't keep the animal on that. And it's like, yes, you can. Veterinarians seem to think you can't keep an animal on a drug for a really extended period, but you can. That's quite possible. That's a good example. And often drugs have dual actions, like a classic one, rats with mycoplasma. Mycoplasma is killed by tetracyclines, but tetracyclines are also really amazing anti-inflammatory drugs. And human dermatologists use them all the time to try and help reduce inflammation. And rats with mycoplasma, chronic respiratory disease, you put them on tetracycline for the rest of their life when they start showing clinical signs, and that reduces the inflammation. And the tetracycline is not primarily being given as an antibiotic. It's been given as an anti-inflammatory, but you can leave the animals on it for life. And with these alternative therapies, they're all very nice, but when people ask me about alternative therapies, I just say, I'm really sorry, I know nothing about them. You know, I've been educated in the Western medical tradition. It's sort of like a really hot topic. And rather than saying something like, I don't think they work, it's just like, I don't even want to go there. I just say, I don't know about them. I think that's a safe way. And if you're really interested, 
in alternative therapies, then you should study them and research them and be really good at it. Cool. No, this is really awesome information. Thank you for this. I did want to ask you um, a few questions that I ask every one of my guests. Okay. The first one was actually, what book do you most recommend to vets? I normally just recommend, for veterinarians who are asking, I find out what their specialty is. Normally it's exotic pets, and I recommend what I think is a good book, Pink Book, The Cuisinberry. And the second question I had was, if you could give one piece of advice to every vet in the world, what would it be and why? And it can also, by the way, be a piece of advice that you received yourself um, sometime in your career as well. I think it would be trust your feelings. Because I think when you're young, you're unsure about things. It could either be the people you're working with and you try to be logical and you're really thinking, these are really not nice people, they're using me. Or in medicine, you could think, I think it's really this that the others don't want to. Well, you may even find yourself in a situation, I hate being a veterinarian, I'm just not happy. Maybe I should pursue another career. So this trusting your feelings is the first step. But then you need to analyze them and look for evidence. That's always useful. And the evidence may not always be apparent to you because you are subjective. And then it's very helpful to talk to a trusted person who's not necessarily closely involved what you're doing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's really important just to confirm, you know, your feelings are true. But I find that 95% of the time, your feelings are true. You often just can't find evidence for why you don't like these people or why you think this is not a good choice. But yeah, trust your feelings. And as you get older, you'll, you'll be more confident about what you do. Because there are often people, they didn't trust their feelings. And maybe 40 years later, they're already past middle age. They're like, oh, did I do the right thing? Maybe I shouldn't have done this. I think younger mm-hmm. people are much more assertive about trusting their feelings and demanding things they want. And I really like that in young people. A lot of people don't. They say it's disrespectful. But I find the younger people, they're seeing everything new. And as you get older, you accept current practices, what's happening socially, or if it's science, you accept the dogma. And that's why you need young people who have not been exposed to the social or cultural practices or to the scientific dogma to criticize it. And for older people, I say, just be open to young people and how they convey something. It's not being disrespectful. I I welcome that. I always welcome younger people being critical of me or asking questions. That That's always healthy. Great. I, I think that's really good. My last question for you is, how can listeners get in touch with you or find out more about some of the work that you do? I guess two ways are like, one, if it's clinical, they can always ask questions on VIN, Veterinary Information Network in the, um, I think it's small mammals section. That's one way. And then number two, you can always do a literature search and look at papers I've published. The two things, the clinical papers I'm putting out quite a few clinical papers in recent years because I'm helping residents who need to get papers. But in terms of my research, I'm often a collaborator working with the animals. So I might be 
seventh author or fifth author on the paper, that you could always see those and see the diversity of things I'm doing. Great. On that note, I just want to thank you, Tom, for being able to spend the time this weekend to um, have a chat with me and allow all the listeners to learn from you. So really great. Thanks a lot for that. Okay, Simon. Thank you. Hi, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you like the podcast, please spend a couple of minutes to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot and it will help us get the podcast out there. Also, if you have any feedback or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers who you think would be great on the podcast, please email me at contact at inquisitivevet.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. The Inquisitive Vet Podcast is brought to you by Bar Vets Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.